Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. So just to uh, give you a heads up here about the direction of the pulpit ministry today, um, this will be our last message on the theme that we've been doing for the last number of weeks, Christ in the Psalms. Um, and then next Sunday, we'll start uh, a series through the Gospel of Matthew. The following week, Lord willing, we'll have a guest preacher, Richard Chirino, from Faith Community Church in Oxnard. The following week is Christmas Sunday, and so uh, we're going to be in the passage of Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew describes the birth of Jesus, and then, and then on we go. So that's where we're headed, and uh, today, as I mentioned, we're, we're still considering Christ in the Psalms. Psalm 45 is what we'll be looking at, and uh, rather than reading the whole thing right now, we'll, we'll read it as we go through it, but the theme of Psalm 45 is a, a psalm for a royal wedding, and there's, there's something special about a royal wedding, something that captures people's attention. I remember in 1981 when uh, Char Prince Charles married Lady Diana. And uh, I, I sure didn't watch the whole thing on TV, but I remember watching some of it. And do you know that that wedding of Charles and Diana in 1981 attracted a worldwide television audience of 750 million people? It was captivating. It was called... The wedding of the century. And of course, it's sad where it end up, ended up ending up. <laughs> but uh, still, it was, a, it was a glamorous thing, a very interesting thing. And that's because royal weddings capture our attention. So like I mentioned, Psalm 45 is a psalm for a royal wedding. And we know that because in the inspired title, uh, it's called a love song that could just as well be translated a wedding song. And then also in verses 13 through 15, that describes a wedding procession. And then, of course, in Israel's liturgy, it was used this way. It was known in ancient Israel as a wedding Psalm. The, the groom, in this case, was the king of God's covenant people. Israel is not named. We don't know exactly which specific king it was. But Psalm 45, it turns out, reaches far beyond the ancient kingdom of Israel. In fact, we know that because verses 6 and 7 your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That portion from Psalm 45 is cited in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, 
Psalm 45 refers to Jesus, the Son of God. And so we're not only talking about marriage as an institution, we're not only talking about a royal wedding between a uh, king in ancient Israel and his bride, but even more profound and more importantly than that, we're talking about uh, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his bride, whom the New Testament describes as the church. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32, after Paul gives instructions for Christian wives and husbands, he wraps up that section by saying, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. And then in the book of uh, Revelation, the church is called the bride of Christ four times. And then don't forget that in Luke chapter 24, the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So we're on very solid ground to look at Psalm 45 and uh, see this not, not exclusively pertaining to, to Christ and his bride, the church. There was an immediate context, but, but ultimately Psalm 45 is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingship and then him taking to himself his bride, the church. So that's what we're going to be doing today. And Psalm 45 divides into two main sections. In verses 1 through 9, it tells us about the royal bridegroom, the king. And then in verses 10 through 15, it describes the bride. And then in verses 16 and 17, there's, there's a blessing. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's look at this then. Number one is the royal bridegroom in verses 1 through 10. And when you interpret Psalm 45 the way that the New Testament tells us to, it's it's amazing how many things Psalm 45 tells us about, about Christ. So um, the first thing is that he is a king. In other words, this bridegroom described in Psalm 45 is a king. So in verse 1, we read, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. And th this is the anonymous author, the human author of Psalm 45. Uh, the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit, but the human author is this unnamed penman. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So the author is not named, except that uh, he is uh, apparently... Uh, a member of the sons of Korah, and so he would have been a, a member of the Levitical choir. 
but he's writing about this king, and he's, and he's happy to do it. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. He's delighted to take his gift of writing and write about this majestic king, this royal bridegroom. And of course, the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the ultimate king, the king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, on the occasion of his birth, there were wise men from the east who went to offer gifts to Jesus, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And uh, when they came to Jerusalem, they, they asked around and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And indeed, Jesus was king from his birth. And um, the terminology king of kings and lord of lords, that's used Revelation 19 and verse 16, 1 Timothy chapter 6, that is Jesus. Of, of all of the kings there ever have been, he's king of all kings and of all lords that there ever have been or ever will be. Jesus is Lord of lords. He's, he's the king. The second thing is he's handsome. This royal bridegroom is handsome. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 2a. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. And undoubtedly, that was true about the human king in Israel that this psalm was written about originally. Probably was a handsome man. We know that the first king in Israel's history, Saul, was a very handsome man. He was tall and handsome. But of course, sadly, it was revealed during Saul's life that his his outward appearance didn't match what was going on in the inside. He didn't have a heart for God, but he was handsome. The Bible tells us about Jesus, by contrast, that he was not a particularly handsome man. Ron read from Isaiah chapter 53. I think it was verses 5 and 6, or 4 and 5. But in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, the, the prophet describes the coming uh, suffering servant of Jehovah, the Messiah, like this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus did not attract a following because he was physically attractive. And that's always the problem with the Jesus movies and pictures. The, um, that movie that came out a few years ago, The, the Son of God, I, I, I liked the movie. It was a good movie. But the guy playing Jesus was a Portuguese supermodel. Jesus did not, according to the scriptures, Jesus did not look like a Portuguese or Palestinian supermodel. His looks didn't attract attention. His looks weren't what stood out about him. But he was still attractive. 
Jesus was attractive because of his grace, because of his wisdom, because of his goodness, because of his authority, because of his teaching, because of his words. And that leads us to this next element of his description, the description of the royal bridegroom, the king. Number three, he speaks graciously. He speaks graciously. And that's in the second half of verse two. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. The sad truth is, concerning the kingship in ancient Israel that a lot of Israel's kings had turned away from the Lord. They were idolaters. They were adulterers, fornicators, wretched sinners, immoral men. They, they did terrible things, wicked things, and they said terrible and wicked things. But this particular king in Psalm 45 was, was a good king. And he said good things. He made royal pronouncements that were, that were true and just and gracious. But the New Testament tells us that no one had ever spoken like Jesus did. In fact, that's a quote from the, the temple guard who had been sent out to abduct Jesus, to arrest Jesus. They had been sent out by the leaders uh, in the temple and they came back empty-handed and all they could say to their leaders was exactly that. No one has ever spoken like this man. And Jesus' speaking, his, his teaching, his words... His gracious words, they left them dumbfounded and disarmed so that they were unable to apprehend him, at least on that occasion. And we're given a glimpse of this as well when Peter made his famous confession concerning Jesus. Um, actually, this was on the occasion of uh, the, the multitude of disciples turning away and uh, following Jesus no more, John 6.66. And in John 6 and verse 68, Jesus turns to the 12 and said, well, what about you? Are you going to leave too? Are you going to depart as well? And then Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Amen. And that's the thing about Jesus' gracious speech. It's, it's not just that he was well-spoken and spoke graciously and mercifully, but the content of what he had to say was eternal life. In fact, think about his words. He is the word. He's the eternal word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, and he came for eternal life Amen. to seek and to save that which was lost, 
to redeem his people to himself, to save his people from their sins. Grace is poured upon Jesus' lips. The fourth aspect of the description here of the royal bridegroom is he's majestic in the exercise of his royal power. He's majestic in the exercise of his royal power. Notice verses three through five. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And when it comes to Israel's king, if he was gracious and handsome, but a failure as a warrior, his rule would come to nothing because he's weak. And Israel's enemies would triumph over him and God's people. But what makes this royal bridegroom, this king, so glorious and majestic is that he, he looks the part of the king, he talks like a king, he's gracious and merciful, and he's a mighty warrior. He, he's able to exercise his kingly authority and power through his military prowess. And that's a small, dim foreshadowing of the majesty and power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout these studies in our Psalms, um, I've mentioned Psalm 28 and verse, I mean, Matthew 28 and verse 18 a lot, where Jesus said about himself, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we saw in our study of Psalm 110, that was the first messianic psalm that we looked at in this series because that psalm is quoted more than any other in the New Testament. Psalm 110 and verse 1, it's quoted in Psalm, I mean Hebrews 1 and verse 13. God says to his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this is why Jesus could be so confident when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is the ultimate king and he's majestic in the exercise of his royal power. Fifthly, he sits on God's throne as the Lord's anointed. Verses six and seven. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And probably what that means to the 
um, the human king that this was originally written about was that he was sitting on God's throne in the sense that God had established the throne of David and God had raised up this particular king, the king of Psalm 45, to sit on, on his throne. This is God's throne. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the, the king here realizes, as the author does, that the kingdom is much bigger than this individual human king. Verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So what's interesting about this passage is that the writer of the book of Hebrews, when, when he cites this passage, he applies it to the Son in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and he says, to which of the angels did God ever say? And then he, and then he cites this. And the point being that you, you look at what Hebrews chapter 1 says about the Son, that he is the, uh, the exact imprint of the nature of God. And through him all things were created, and in him all things hold together and, and consist. This Son is God himself. And so when the New Testament looks back on Psalm 45 and verses 6 and 7, your throne, O God, means God himself, ultimately. There, there's no one else who can fulfill this literally the way that King Jesus does. Because Jesus is called God in verse 7 and verse 6, and then in verse 7, Jesus has a God. God is his God. Jesus is God. God is his God as well. How does that make sense? It makes perfect sense in the person of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in human form. And of course, that's what we celebrate during Advent season at, at Christmas time. The fact that the eternal Son of God who always existed, who was in the beginning with God and who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Humanity was added to his deity. And what's so amazing about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in addition to just the fact of it, is that he wasn't born as a king in a palace, but he was born as a helpless babe in a manger, which, never forget, was a feeding trough. Very, very humble circumstances. But Jesus is the ultimate son of David. And you'll notice that uh, in verse 7, it says about him, this king, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So 
in addition to what the writer of the book of Hebrews says about Psalm 45, this idea of God's anointed one. This is fulfilled in Jesus. 528 times the New Testament refers to Jesus as the Christ, the Christos, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one. So you have, you have King Saul, who was God's anointed in terms of uh, being God's appointed king. You have David. You have all of David's successors who were God's anointed kings, but none of them, none of them can compare to this Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a hymn written by James Montgomery in 1771, Hail to the Lord's Anointed. I'm going to read a couple of stanzas for you. It ca captures this, really what's going on here in verses 5 all the way down to uh, uh, verse 7. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression to set the captive free, to take away transgression, and to rule in equity. That's stanza one. And then stanza four. To him shall prayer unceasing and daily vows ascend, because he's God. His kingdom still increasing, a kingdom without end, as God had promised to David. The tide of time shall never his covenant remove. His name shall stand forever. That name to us is love. He sits on God's throne as the Lord's anointed. Sixthly, music celebrating his wedding makes him glad. Notice verse 8. Your robes are all fragrant and with Myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. And the first part of verse 8 there, I mean, he is fully celebrating his, his wedding day. He's dressing the part, looking the part, smelling the part. And in verse 8, as these stringed instruments are playing, on the occasion of this, of this wedding the royal bridegroom here doesn't just think of it as a detail or as an annoyance, but the music makes him glad. He's rejoicing in the whole moment, the whole affair. And that reminds me of what the Bible has to say about singing from Christians and singing in church. There's a whole bunch of passages we could look at. We don't have time. But I'll just remind you of this one from Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19, which talks about being filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord 
with your heart. That is why we sing in church. It's not because it's fun, although I trust you enjoy it. I enjoy it. It's not because it's traditional, although it's a very strong, prominent tradition in Christ's church. We don't just do it for one another, although that's definitely part of it. We're supposed to be addressing one another in psalm, hymns, and spiritual songs. But ultimately, we sing and make melody to the Lord because the Lord likes it. The Lord enjoys it. He takes delight in his people singing his praises. Think about that. We're going to be singing some more today, but think about that. Every single time we sing to the Lord, it is ultimately to him with our hearts because he enjoys it. He delights in it. Because he delights in us, his people. And how do we know that? Because he's ransomed us with his own blood. He went to great lengths and paid such a huge, incomprehensible price for our salvation. He must love us. His love for us is incredibly invaluable. He loves us and he loves to hear his people join their hearts together as a royal choir singing his praises together. Amen. Seventhly, he rules with his queen at his side. He rules with his queen at his side. Notice verse 9. Daughters of kings are among your ladies in honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. We're told about Jesus, that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here we're told through this type and shadow of this king of Psalm 45 that Jesus has a right hand man. It's not really a man, it's his queen. It's his church. And the idea is that there is some sort of union between Christ and his bride, the church, in the outworking of the authority of Christ in his kingdom. We're told, for example, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Catch that. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, Jesus said. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his kingdom. And we are, believers are called a kingdom of priests. Look up 1 Peter 2.9. So this royal bridegroom rules with his queen at his Side. That's a brief look at the royal bridegroom. 
Next, in verses 10 through 15, here's a profile of the bride. What does this inspired songwriter have to say about this bride? Five things, well, more than that. We're talking about five things. First of all, she's a foreigner. So notice verses 10 through 12. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Your people implies her people are not the people of Israel. And her father's house, well, her father was from another people, another country. And the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Maybe that was her country of origin, Tyre. But she's described as a foreigner. And this reminds us that that's how the Bible describes us. By nature, if you look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're described as dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We're described as the children of wrath, Sons of disobedience. Paul uses different terminology to describe our natural sinful state in verses 12 and 13, but it's in the language of being foreigners. Listen, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was us before Christ. But notice what Jesus did, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're naturally foreigners, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. She's a foreigner. Number two, she's beautiful. And you heard that in verse 11 of Psalm 45. And the king will desire your beauty. The reality is, spiritually speaking, morally speaking, we're not beautiful. We're the opposite of beautiful in and of ourselves. There's natural beauty in every human being because we're all image bearers of God, even though we're fallen. There's dignity and worth and beauty in every single son or daughter of Adam and Eve. But in God's eyes, in terms of our righteousness, in terms of our morality, in terms of our spiritual life, 
We're not beautiful. In fact, even our righteousnesses are called filthy rags. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. So what does Jesus do when he redeems us? He draws us to himself and he he grants us the gift of saving faith. And it is by faith that we put our trust in Jesus and his righteousness, which is the very righteousness of God, is imputed to our account, credited to our account. Instantly, from the moment of salvation, we're counted as righteous, declared righteous by God, the righteous judge. But then God doesn't leave us alone. From that moment on, he begins to work within us. Jesus Christ takes up residence within us through the person of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us and he sanctifies us. He makes us more and more like him, more and more holy, more and more righteous, practically. That righteousness is not the basis of our justification. It's the righteousness of God uh, imputed to us through faith in Jesus Christ and that faith alone. But still, justifying faith is never alone, but it's always accompanied by a progressively righteous life, a pursuit of holiness. And we're told about that in the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 8, where it talks about the bride of Christ. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Interesting. God notices your righteous deeds. And according to Psalm 45 and verse 11, it's attractive to him. It's desirable for him. Just like during creation week, we're told, and behold, it was good, and behold, it was good, and behold, it was good, and behold, it was very good. God admires and is attracted to his own handiwork. And if you're a believer, you're God's handiwork. And as you live a righteous life, albeit very imperfectly, because you have been accepted in the beloved, God sees your righteous deeds and he says, behold, it is very good. Again, that doesn't make you righteous in his sight, but it is still something for God to admire. She's beautiful. She's rich. Number three, she's rich. Notice verses 12 and 13. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. And supposedly... If rich people give you a bunch of gifts, that makes you rich too. And notice verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. Her rich wedding attire 
is just a small sample of her newfound riches. As she's joined together with this royal bridegroom, the king. And that's a beautiful picture of us. We're told in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Ours is the true rags to riches story. Number four, she's a pure virgin. She's a pure virgin. Verse 14. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. And the idea is that if she has virgin companions and she himself is a virgin, otherwise she's a hypocrite. The virgin companions aren't the star of the show on the wedding day. It's the bride. She's a pure virgin. And this is how the church is described in the New Testament as well. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 12, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And notice Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. What is Jesus, who is the head of the church, the husband of the church, what is he doing for his church? Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Jesus is doing for us. This is what he is doing in us. He is purifying us. He is sanctifying us. So here's what's so interesting about this analogy of a pure virgin. Humanly speaking, you can't undo the loss of purity, right? Once that's done, that's done. You can't go back and undo it. But here we are as sinners who are described in terms of adultery and sexual immorality in the Bible uh, Paul does say, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were cleansed, but you were justified. So in God's economy of salvation, he is able to reverse our impurity. Once we're in Christ, once we're justified, once we're adopted, once we become a member of the bride of Christ. Christ does not look at us as if we are impure and as if we've lost our virginity. 
He, he looks at us that way, as if we are chaste, pure virgins. And then the whole point of our life now on this earth, walking by faith, is that we would be more and more sanctified, more and more cleansed, so that when Christ comes to claim his bride, we will be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It's glorious and gracious. She's a pure virgin. Fifthly, she joyfully anticipates the consummation of her marriage. Notice verse 15 in Psalm 45. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. This is the, the queen and her virgin companions. She's looking forward, not just to the ceremony, but to the marriage itself. She's looking forward to being one flesh with her new husband. And the New Testament tells us that there's coming a future consummation between Christ and his church. It's, it's not physical, but it's spiritual. And it's, it's a consummation in which our union with Christ will be complete in which every practical spot and wrinkle and blemish that keeps us from enjoying fellowship with Christ now will be removed. We'll be able to look through real eyes, glorified eyes, and behold the glory of the King. And at least 11 times in the New Testament, we are told to look forward to that great day. Like Philippians 3 and verse 20, where Paul wrote, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just marking time. We're not just here in drudgery. We're not just living a life of misery, waiting until we finally give up the ghost but we're living this life on purpose, for purpose, eagerly waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So that's a profile of the bridegroom and then of the bride and just really briefly here, verses 16 and 17, the blessing. The blessing. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to, re to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. And I'm just going to read to you some verses here that I believe capture the spirit of how Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing. Revelation 5 and verse 10, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Psalm 2 and verse 8, God says to his son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. In Revelation 7 and verse 9, 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And indeed, Christ's name will always be remembered. Because there's salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your institution of marriage. And we thank you for this royal wedding that Psalm 45 speaks of so poetically and beautifully. But we thank you more than anything, Lord, for how this psalm foreshadows the great bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great King, and his bride, the church. Would you encourage our hearts with these words? And would you draw lost sinners to yourself and save them even today as they hear of Jesus Christ even from the Psalms. For we pray in Jesus' worthy name, amen.